Let's bow in prayer. What a privilege, Lord, to hold your word in our hands and to, uh, to mine the depth of what you have revealed of yourself to us. It's amazing, Father, however deep we go in that mine, it is deeper still, and we will spend all of eternity learning more of who you are. Thank you, Father, for the way you have revealed yourself to us in your word. And I pray that we would gladly receive it and gladly apply it to our lives for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I am looking forward to the candlelight service on Friday. I love a candlelight service. We dim the lights, and so really the only light in the room is the Advent wreath in full light by then, all five candles lit. And then I take just a simple little candle and I go and I light it from the Christ candle and bring it down to the front and and share that light with two ushers who walk down the center aisle and light the candles on the ends and the light just spreads to fill the entire room. I get a great view of it from up here. It's, It's a wonderful, wonderful thing. And what starts out seemingly small and insignificant, spreads and fills the entire room. It's a picture of how the gospel spreads. We think we can't make much of a difference. And yet, as we share that gospel one life at a time, the influence of the gospel spreads. It's gonna be interesting to get to heaven and learn of the difference that we actually made. Sometimes we kind of kick ourselves thinking how little difference we're making, but it's gonna be interesting. You may find someone coming up to you and thanking you for sharing the Lord Jesus at a neighborhood gathering with a young child who then grew up to share their faith with the person who is now thanking you. And If you had not been a part of it, that person wouldn't be there. And that's how the gospel spreads. The original 12 disciples, minus Judas, were where it all started after the resurrection. We see it spreading through Jerusalem. It seems to have grown exponentially in that first century. Uh, The day of Pentecost brought 3,000 to Christ alone. When we think about the gospel spreading then throughout the Middle East and and penetrating the Roman Empire, we're amazed, and we may feel actually a little embarrassed about how we're doing ourselves. But did you realize that 70% of all the progress that has been made in reaching previously unreached people groups has taken place since 1900, according to David Bryant. And 70% of that figure has been since World War II. 
And 70% of that figure has been since the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1992. The gospel is spreading. The gospel is spreading. And it's intended to. This light is intended to be shared. Jesus said it in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, you are the light of the world. The city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. It gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. This light is intended to be shared, not hidden. We've been talking about light this whole Advent season. The theme of this Advent season has been the lights of Christmas. And we started off week one uh, talking about light that dazzles and this, this incredible light show that God put on for these shepherds, showing how God intends to share his message of salvation with the most insignificant people we could imagine. God cares about them, and he put on this extravagant show for them. We talked the second week about light that leads, and the wonder that on day four of creation, God would set in place the stars, the planets, and make us on day six, but even in what he did on day four, he set in motion things that would lead people to the redeemer of the world. Before we were created, he planned our redemption. Amazing. And then last week we talked about light that the darkness can't grasp. The assurance that the darkness can't win it may seem to be winning when we look at the news, when we look around ourselves. It cannot win. God is still on the throne. And the light is still shining. Today, one more installment as we think about the lights of Christmas. Light for the world. Light for the world. The light we've been given isn't something we're just going to be able to keep to ourselves. It's intended to be shared the light of Christ that we have been talking about for the past month has, is, is intended by God to be shared with the world. Today, we're actually going to look at a mistake that was made a long time ago and hopefully learn from it so that we don't make the same mistake ourselves. Historian George Santayana said, those who will not learn from the past are condemned to repeat it. And so we want to look at this mistake and not repeat it ourselves. Let's take another look at Isaiah chapter 49, verses 1 through 6. This got read a moment ago. Isaiah 49 is going to be our text for this morning's message. Verses 1 through 6. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother. He named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. And he said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I've labored in vain. 
I've spent my strength for nothing in vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. And now the Lord says, he who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, that Israel might be gathered to him, for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. God opens this section by calling out to people who are far away. Do you see it in verse one? Listen to me, O coastlands, all you remote places. Give attention, you peoples from afar. He's calling out to people who are far away through the voice of his people. Who is the me of verse 49? Listen to me, O coastlands. Give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from them. Who is the me? If we trace it down through these verses, we find verse two, my mouth, he hid me. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. Verse three, he said to me, you are my servant Israel in whom I will be glorified. The me that we see in these opening verses is his people Israel. God is to be glorified in his servant Israel. And part of that mission is shown in verse five, to bring Jacob, God's people, Israel, back to him, to gather Israel to him, but that's not all. It doesn't end there, verse six, says, it's too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. It doesn't stop with them. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. God is calling Israel here to get its eyes off of itself and to be the missionary people that God intended them to be. They're to be a light to the nations. To settle for less than that is too light a thing. The word in Hebrew that, that is translated here, too light a thing, uh, means slight, uh, trifling, insignificant. The NIV puts it this way, it is too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and to bring back those of Israel that I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. It's too small a thing for you just to reach your own kinsmen. I want my salvation to reach the ends of the earth. So I'd like for us this morning to think about two ways of thinking based on verse six. Small thinking and big thinking. And the central truth that I'd like for us to see is that God is calling us to think as big as he does when it comes to reaching people for him. That we might have his heart to reach lost people. The light God gives us is intended to be shared. 
So two truths to help us flesh this out. First, small thinking focuses on self. Second, big thinking focuses on the purposes of God. So let's unpack the first one. Small thinking focuses on self, me, my interests. Someone said the smallest package I've ever seen is a man wrapped up in himself. Yet one of the lessons we learn from the history of humankind is uh, that we have a great tendency to get wrapped up in ourselves. God says that won't do. Verse 6, he says, Too light a thing, too small a thing, too trifling a thing, that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Too light a thing to focus on self. Too small, too trifling. The package is too small when you're wrapped up in yourself. Now, this is a prophetic section of Scripture. And this is a a prophetic passage in in a couple of ways. First, it it speaks of God's will and, and tells people what God wants them to do. When we talk about speaking prophetically, we're not talking necessarily about foretelling the future, but forthtelling God's will. It is God's will that you do this. That is the, the character of this passage. But it's also prophetic in the other sense that it speaks of future things, things that will ultimately be fulfilled in Christ. Prophecy, generally, as we, as we read it in Scripture, has a near-term fulfillment and an ultimate fulfillment. Generally, there there is something in the context of where that prophetic word is spoken that is actually fulfilled in that time, but it it generally has an ultimate fulfillment as well in Christ. It's kind of like looking at a mountain range and, and seeing a sequence of peaks and not knowing how much distance there is between those peaks until you're actually traveling them. And while this passage finds its ultimate fulfillment in Christ, that is salvation reaching to the ends of the earth, it also had a near-term fulfillment in the people of Israel. They're the ones who are identified in verse 3 as God's servant. They were the ones who were told, you need to be reaching the world. Now, ultimately, it would be fulfilled in Christ. He is the greater servant of the Lord that Isaiah points to in chapters 52 and 53. But in the near term, Israel has a role to play in being God's servant in reaching the world with his salvation. Reaching the whole world wasn't something God just thought up when Christ came on the scene. It's been his plan all along. And it was Israel's mission all along. Trouble is they lost sight of it. God made it clear from the beginning that he wanted to reach all humankind with his salvation. A relationship with God was severed in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve sinned. And it was in that very place that God first gave word that he would send a savior. And he talked about the one, the seed of the woman who would come and crush the serpent's head. So God started in chapter 12 of Genesis with a man called Abram. It's got read from that this morning. 
the call of this man, Abram, in the midst of a a very pagan culture that he lived in, uh, Abram called on the name of the Lord, and God made a covenant with him. And God told him some wonderful things there in chapter 12 of Genesis. If you have your Bible, why don't you go ahead and have a look. Genesis 12, starting at verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. What a a beautiful plan unfolding. God starts with Abram as a beachhead on the human situation. And he speaks to him here of a threefold blessing. He speaks of a, a personal blessing, I will bless you. He speaks of a national blessing, I will make of you a great nation. And he speaks of a universal blessing. In you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So God was telling Abram, who would soon change his name to Abraham, that he was going to start with him, create a nation from him that would reach the whole world. But something happened along the way. The nation that God created out of Abraham lost sight of the fact that God intended to use them to reach the whole world. They started thinking only of themselves. And that's a human tendency. That's human nature. We're self-centered creatures, aren't we? Let me illustrate. I am sure that come Saturday morning, come Christmas morning, around Christmas trees all through this congregation, People, especially very little people, will display incredible generosity and grace and patience toward others, together with a complete absence of self-interest, right? Wrong. What's going to happen is all across this country, little children will be getting up before dawn, running into their parents' bedroom, and they've got only one question on their minds. It's, is it time yet? Is it time yet? And the parents will look at the clock and say, no, it's two o'clock in the morning, go back to sleep. The time they're waiting for is the time when they can run into the living room and tear into anything that has their name on it and a whole bunch of stuff that doesn't. That's just the way it goes. And the only reason we adults don't do that ourselves is that we know what's under the tree already. We put it there. We value our sleep more than we value opening gifts. We are self-centered ourselves. Human nature hasn't changed. And so we really can't be too hard on Israel as we look back at them. It might have been us. And because of that basic self-centeredness that is a part of us, Israel stops thinking about the whole world that they were called to reach. And when it comes to a Messiah, they start thinking in terms of Messiah's main job being to meet their needs, to restore them. 
And what Isaiah says about the Messiah looks beyond that self-centeredness and gets back to God's original purpose. He says, it's too light a thing, too small a thing, too trifling a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I've kept. No, it's not just about Israel, it's about reaching the whole world with God's salvation. Israel was guilty of thinking too small when it came to the purposes of God. Too small. God tells Israel, your purposes are too small. My purposes are much bigger. And the solution to too small thinking is to think along the lines of the purposes of God. And that brings us to the second point. Big thinking focuses on the purposes of God. Verse six, the second half of it. I will make you a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Here's an important truth from this passage. God's purposes extend beyond the people who are already his to reach people who his people might not even like. The word that's translated nations here in the ESV is a word that translates the Hebrew word goyim. Have you heard the word goyim? Gentiles, nations. It's not a nice word. You don't want to be called goyim. Uh, it generally refers to the corrupt nations that surrounded Israel, nations that practiced things like idolatry and sexual immorality and child sacrifice and other things that are detestable to God. Now, the relationship between Israel and these surrounding nations is, is a little complex. I think we can boil it down to two phases, essentially. And the first phase was Israel taking the land. Uh, this land of Canaan was occupied by godless people, and God was giving it to his people. And in his giving it to his people, he was executing judgment on the godless people that lived there. And the instructions for taking the land did not have a whole lot of room for mercy. The reason was it was time for judgment. God's patience had worn out with these people. The sins of those inhabitants of the land had reached full measure. Now, if you were in Genesis chapter 12 and your finger is there, flip over just a page or so to Genesis chapter 15. There is a verse buried in there that I think sheds an awful lot of light on the conquest of Canaan. Because people look at that and say, how could God order the slaughter of so many people like that? How, you, you call yourselves God's people, but look at these atrocious things they did, these, these atrocities of war. This was judgment. Take a look at, at Genesis chapter 15, uh, starting at verse 13. This is in the midst of the covenant with Abram. It says, the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years. He's talking about the Egyptian bondage, right? He is telling Abraham, even before he's Abraham, while he's still Abram, that this is coming for your descendants. They will be there 400 years. Okay, we pick up 
Verse 14, but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. We see that in Exodus as well. God judges Egypt. They plunder the Egyptians, come out with great riches. Look at verse 15. As for yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. This is the end of Abraham's life forecast for him. Verse 16, and they, your descendants, shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Another version says the sins of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. I have been putting up with them for generations. I will give them another 400 years and they will not turn from their ways. And therefore you will come in and execute my judgment on them. This is the wrath of God being poured out on the inhabitants of Canaan in the conquest of that land. It was God's judgment on a people whose sin had reached full measure. That's phase one of the relationship between Israel and the nations around it, taking the land. Uh, that leads to phase two, living in the land. God wanted his people pure. And so he told them not to intermarry with the people of the surrounding nations once they got into the land. The goal, though, was to show those nations what it looked like to live in a relationship with God. And the nation of Israel didn't live up to that. They did a couple of different things. One is that some became so inwardly focused that they cut themselves off from the very people they were supposed to reach. You think about the Abrahamic covenant that they would reach to the ends of the earth. They, they focused inwardly instead. Others among them lost sight of their uniqueness and became as corrupt as the people that they were supposed to reach. So you've got some that are focused totally inwardly, and you've got some that have mixed totally, so there's no distinction anymore between them and the people around them. And the problem still persists today. You can see it when you look at some churches. Some churches isolate themselves from the people God has called us to reach. They're concerned about their purity, and it's a good concern. Only it's not supposed to lead us to cut ourselves off from the people who need what we've got. Other churches are so involved in community issues and in the culture around them that they lose sight of their uniqueness as the people of God. And they become civic clubs at best, gambling halls at worst, and it's terribly easy to fall into one of those two errors. The bottom line is that we are to remain pure so that we can have a witness. We are also to be involved so that we can be a witness. But our focus is never supposed to be on ourselves. Our focus is to be on God and his purposes. And Israel lost sight of that. And if we're wise, we will learn from their mistake God not only had to remind them that their thinking had become too small, but he had to remind them of what was on his heart from the start. 
He wanted to use them as a light to the nations to bring his salvation to the ends of the earth. Big thinking focuses on the purposes of God, thinking his thoughts after him. What we need to see this morning is that God calls us from small, self-centered thinking to big, God-centered thinking. He calls us from thinking about our own purposes to thinking about his purposes. Let me share just a few points of application as we wrap up so that if you came hoping I'd get in your face this morning, you won't go home disappointed. Let's think about prayer first. We can be thinking bigger in prayer. What do your prayers look like? God's purposes are way bigger than our self-centered concerns. It's great that God doesn't turn us away when our prayers are too small and too petty, but it's helpful to think about how we pray to look at some great prayers of scripture and see how we can pray bigger. Do our prayers seek to know and bring about God's will? Or are we seeking through our prayer to bring about our will? Do we treat God like a vending machine in the sky and try to pull just the right levers? It's his purposes that we need to be pursuing. Sometimes, we look back on something we prayed for that God didn't give us and we thank him that he said no to our purposes and yes to his own. Look at the prayers of Paul and see how big your own prayers can be. I've printed some in the program in the further thought section. I would encourage you to pray through some of those and start to pray bigger. Another application has to do with our homes. We can think bigger there as well. Have you thought about how your home can be used of God in your community? Have you thought beyond your own needs and those of your immediate family as far as your neighborhood is concerned? Have you opened your doors to your neighbors in order to build relationships with them that can convey the love of Christ? Here's a suggestion. Try making a list of your neighbors. And as you list their names, list their interests as well. Hope you know them well enough to know some of their interests. And then try brainstorming as a family how you can build bridges to them that will connect you with them through their interests to allow you to minister to them. Here's another point of application. This one's directed at the, the young people among us, teenagers in particular, and parents of teenagers. We can think bigger there as well. Just getting through adolescence is not your mission. That's not your mission. Your mission is to glorify God. And the struggles you face in adolescence can be the very key to God using you. You have tremendous opportunity to make a mark on your generation right now for Christ. When your friends are forming the values that they're going to live by the rest of their lives, you have probably heard the statistic that 80% of people who come to faith in Christ do that by age 18. 80%. 
Did you consider your own part in that, your own role in that? Don't sit on the sidelines thinking about yourself. Get in the game. One last point of application. Ministries of River Hills, we can think bigger there too. Don't just think about things that will meet the needs of people here within the congregation. Think about reaching people for Christ. I uh, had lunch with another pastor in town. He was telling me about something he did with a friend of his, a pastor friend, who wanted him to kind of critique the ministries of his church. He said, bring me a, a church bulletin, a church program. And he took his pen and he looked at all of the things going on in that church and he drew arrows in or arrows out next to each item. Arrows in for the things that minister to the body itself. Arrows out for things that reach out beyond the walls of the church. And when he had finished, the whole bulletin was filled with arrows in. And he said, I think I see the problem. What's the evangelistic potential of the ministry that you're a part of? What's the evangelistic potential of, of the event that you are planning? Think about the UNO tournament. I, I hear about it a lot. Is that just for us? Is that just for the folks we know? Or you think there might be other people who would enjoy a round of UNO? Maybe. It's not that hard. You know? Think about, for instance, uh, the talent night. Good event. Good event. Got any friends with talent? You know, it doesn't have to be the most spiritual talent. It's just a fun night and they can get to know somebody. Think about the church work day. I've got friends who wouldn't show up here on a Sunday morning but would love to swing a hammer and, and help out. Um, there's a lot of folks who we could build relationship with through events like those. Is there some way to make the event that you're planning something that would bring in someone who doesn't know the Lord? So some way your small group can do something for somebody that you know who needs a hand. We need to build relationships with people who don't come here, and the programming of the church can help. But in our programming, we need to think about how to open our doors to folks who don't already come here. An author that I have enjoyed speaks of churches that lament the fact that we're not living in a church culture anymore that the church isn't as central now as it used to be. He says, we used to live in a church culture here in America, and we don't anymore, but he doesn't lament that fact. In fact, here's what he said about it. He says, I am convinced the church is at its best on a mission field. Do not long for the return of a church culture the peace and tranquility, the pleasant programs and endless committee meetings of a church culture church is not where the church is at its best. The church is always at its best on a mission field. On a mission field, the church is lean and strong and has courage and vision. In a church culture, the church becomes lazy and weak, timid and cautious, bloated and bureaucratic. On a mission field, the church is at its blazing best. God has blessed us greatly by planting us on this mission field. Amen.
You get the idea? We're not just here for ourselves. We've been planted on a mission field. Leave small thinking behind. Be the people of God on mission to display the greatness of God for all to see. What's that look like? Let me just suggest a few things from River Hills mission statement. First, we declare God's greatness. That's what we're about, right? That's what it says. We declare God's greatness when we come together here to worship him as the body of Christ, as we dig into his word, as we sing his praise, and as we worship him in our homes. We declare his greatness. We also grow in love for God and for his people by participating in small groups and in personal spiritual disciplines. Through those things, we grow in our love for God and our love for one another. And we also serve others for joy and his honor. Those words are shared every morning here, every Sunday morning from the pulpit. And we serve others for joy and his honor through our involvement in the ministry teams that we're a part of, in service and outreach, in international missions. And all of that is for the glory of God who longs to see his salvation reach to the ends of the earth. It's all for his glory. As we face a new year, let's think as big as God does. He can really do some amazing things through us if we will. You'll find some questions for further thought in the back of your program. I hope you'll make use of those in the course of this week. Okay. Let's... uh, Bring the worship team back up and worship in song. As they're coming, let me close in prayer. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the desire you express in your word that we reach to the ends of the world with your salvation. Help us, Father, to do that and not focus just inwardly, but outwardly as well. In Jesus' name, amen.